0: Reminders that the book of John was meant to be read, start to finish. We hope that you will do that. And the whole purpose of jumping in and kind of going through these themes is so that when you read through the book, start to finish, you will start to recognize these themes that we've talked about. And they'll just leap off the page at you, and it'll be a much deeper, richer uh, reading for you. Now, if you've already read the gospel according to John, just to give you a hint of where we're heading next. Uh, You might turn towards the end of the New Testament and read through those letters that are written by John, which are labeled 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and that's where we're going, not next week, but the week after, and those letters were meant to be read start to finish, uh, just like we've talked about the gospel, so it gives you a hint as to where we were going. Let's start this week, though, by just reflecting on the gospel according to John. Uh, Many of you have read this from start to finish um, and have been a part of these classes each week, uh, what has what, is, what has stood out to you? What have you been reflecting on since we last spoke? Wow. Yeah, Tony brings us back and says if you read this through to the end and you finally get to the point, really, of the book, the big sign, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, and then you hear Jesus say in his death, it is finished. That has such weight when you get there. Thank you. What else? Well, I'm curious to know if by the end of a reading, if any of you are led to the very point that John makes, the reason that he wrote the book. And that's what's on the screen here in front of you. If you have, ah, this just fell off the back pocket. Still seems connected. If you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 20, and you'll find this verse that's up on the screen in John 20, verse 30. And this is our target for today, too. And let's just read this. This is the theme statement of the whole book of John. John here at the end of the book says, here's why it's written. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, meaning this gospel according to John. But these are written, these signs are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his Name. So today we turn to really the final and the greatest sign that is included in this book, uh, which is the resurrection. But to get to the resurrection, obviously you have to go through the death of Christ, and that's where I understand we were last week. Yep. And so take us back to last week, and let's see if we can't end up with the the resurrection today.
1: Uh, So as you may remember last week when we got to the point of trying to talk about why Jesus died, we went back to John chapter 12. And we looked at verses 20 through 26 as sort of a quick little synopsis um, of why Jesus had to die. Granted, it's a huge, uh, much broader theme, but just staying in John, going back to John 12, I think I have the same one as you, it reads, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethesda in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And so we looked at this idea that Jesus' death wasn't, wasn't the end. It wasn't the culmination, but it was very much a beginning. And so you're meant to have this vision in your mind of a field, say, you know, it's uncultivated yet, and you start planting seeds. Well, you don't expect to get those seeds back exactly as you planted them, but you expect a harvest to grow. And that's exactly what Jesus' death has done. His death then allows for the flourishment of humanity to arise as this beautiful harvest that is reaped, Uh, Because of what he's done for us. Um, And so, and obviously, though, you know, in this passage, you don't see the death being the end, but you see very much something else is to come. And that's then where we roll into this idea of his resurrection uh, and the things that could be perceived from that.
0: That's right, yes. And that uh, you brought this out last week, but I wanted to show this again in uh, John chapter 12. A uh, little bit confusing in English when he says that whoever hates his, or excuse me, whoever loves his life loses it, but whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He keeps using this term life. Uh, what you may not know is those are different words that Jesus uses in probably the original if he's speaking Aramaic and then also in Greek. Uh, the word life there used first is the word uh, in Greek is suke. Probably would have been the Hebrew word nephesh. So really what he's saying is, whoever loves his very self will lose his very self. And whoever hates his self in this world will keep it for eternal, and then he switches, to eternal zoe. Remember we talked about that word being the full, true life. And so, uh, as Tim says, we're led here at this point to this idea, this image of a seed in a field in which the seed loses its very self. In other words, in its seed form. But something amazing comes from that, which is this eternal life. And chapter 12 is what starts, as you're reading through John, this section about the glory of Jesus. And then that takes us to John 20. And John could have told us a lot of stories about the resurrection. Yeah,
1: yeah. if you look through and you read through the different accounts of the Gospels, you get you get remarkably different stories. Uh, Different backgrounds of what happened that day, of their own witnesses, um, and John specifically hones in on his own set of details that he wants to share, and he really seems to put more emphasis than I think the others do on this idea of witness, um, and, and you know who did he who did he approach, who did he come to, uh, who responded, and you get accounts of three different settings of who Jesus appeared to.
0: That's uh, right. So you Mary. Get Mary,
1: and then you get the disciples without poor Thomas being there, uh, and then you get Thomas after that fact. <laughs> And and really trying to uh, build on this idea that seems minor, I think, when you first read through, but that being a witness was very important, um, especially in their time and place. They didn't have photography. They didn't have video footage. So someone's witness was the validation
0: of an event that took place. And remember that John's writing this letter, or excuse me, this gospel, Uh, what was it could be as much as 60 years but somewhere between 30 and 60 years after these events occurred and this was probably after those other synoptic gospels you know had been written so John when he's picking who could be the witnesses to show you that this sign occurred that Jesus who really was very much dead is now come to life he could have picked as you read through the other synoptics any number of people uh, that Jesus appeared to but instead he picks these three scenarios one Mary disciples and then Thomas and then we touched on several weeks ago now because we're on week 15 if you
1: can believe that um, when we talked about women uh, that, that this, this appearing to Mary was, was highly significant for their place in time uh, because and w- one of the things you'll always see in every commentary it seems that you read on this is that you know, he appeared to a woman uh, to almost validate that this really happened um, and then you quoted from the, was it the Mishnah that you mm-hmm. found that, um, where it talks about, and I think we read this before, too, back, then, back in the day when we did that class, that uh, women weren't allowed to be witnesses. Uh, in the legal setting, in Jewish time, women were not reliable witnesses. No matter if you had one or you had 50 who all saw the same thing, they would, their witness would not be admissible in court. And so then for for John, well, in all the Gospels, every Gospel mentions that women were the first ones to see this event. Um, And so for them to say that is, from a historical point of view, it's used as this really did happen. They wouldn't make this up because to have this truth would undermine the the validity of of what they were trying to say because anyone else wouldn't
0: have started with this. (laughs) And let's back up, too, and just talk about what happened here, uh, according to John. So uh, it's early in the morning, first day of the week. As we talked about last week, Jesus has been crucified. He is dead. He is very dead. This is not Princess Bride, mostly dead. This is he is very much uh, deceased. His his body is is completely lifeless, and his spirit, were said uh, is said, has left him. And so they put him in a tomb, and that tomb ends up being sealed. And then it's on the it's on the third day. So it's the first day of the week. This is this early Sunday morning. We're told while it was still dark. Uh, John just mentions Mary went to the tomb. Now, you find out from the other synoptics, there's there's a couple Marys. There's yeah. Mary, there's uh, Mary, the mother of James. Uh, then there's Mary, who is, I uh, don't no, uh, there's Salome and Joanna. And then I think Luke is the one that says, and a lot of other women. Yeah. So it's like this whole group. Imagine all these women the are going. Women. <laughs> they go to the tomb. They're the ones that go to help kind of prepare the body and, and and provide this honoring amazing honoring service to the lord and of course they're wondering who's going to roll away the stone now john just focuses on one of those women and says mary was the one who shows up and she sees the stones rolled away doesn't understand what's going on he's gone he's not there in the tomb anymore and so she runs back yep. and she tells two people Yep. which is Peter and the beloved disciple yeah. who we assume is John <laughs> we presume okay. is John yeah and so she tells Peter and John and there's this foot race to the tomb um, there's a little debate John ends up getting the last yeah. word on John's this thing he got there yeah. first <laughs> yeah John says the disciple whom Jesus loved showed up first and he just looked in Peter comes behind him runs into the tomb kind of impetuous Peter and then they see here's the 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 death clothes are laid on the deathbed and the head you know, covering is folded up real nice. Jesus made his bed uh, before he left. But he's gone. He's not there. And so Peter and John go back to where they were. Uh, but Mary is left there. Yes. And yes. this
1: is where she sees the Lord. And then you get in chapter 20, uh, starting in verse... Uh, let's start at 14 um, so she, was, she had been weeping uh, these angels appear to her and say why are you weeping um, and then she uh, becomes familiar of this person who's near her and it says when she uh, let's see where are we Oh, so she says to these angels when, after they say why are you weeping because they have taken away my lord and I do not know where they put him when she had said this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and yet she did not know that it was Jesus and Jesus said to her woman why are you weeping whom are you seeking and and I took that those, those things always kind of I think stand out to me of why does he ask obvious questions why is he saying things that he clearly knows the answer to what is the point of this are we meant to see like Mary's like she's crazy and she doesn't even know why she's weeping is Jesus just that unaware of what's going on Um, but then you start to see and I don't have a list of these but you'll see a pattern of this throughout the scriptures where God does this a lot to the prophets um, and Jesus does this several times to people and I think it's meant to make you kind of introspectively think about what's going on you know why is she weeping why is she sad that Jesus is not there you know because as we've talked a lot he said he was going to
0: raise and even the Jewish leaders understood that from a different account do you think maybe John is also intending that question to be asked by us Oh, absolutely, yeah, like when we mentally even go to this scene asking, "Who are we seeking
1: yeah, I mean're yeah, what are you looking for mm-hmm. um, and so yeah as as you, own, you you know introspect on your own life, when you come to the tomb, what is it you're expecting to find, uh, what expectation do you have, which then ties back to you know the whole idea of what what Messiah are you looking for? This all comes together on you know this idea of seeing and, and not seeing what are you really trying to perceive
0: and then there's this beautiful moment where you know jesus she doesn't even recognize it's Jesus talking to her until Jesus says her name and says, Mary. And when he says her name, she turns to him in Aramaic and says, Rabboni, (laughs) which is, you are my teacher. And then Jesus says to her, and this is down in verse 17, do not hold to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go tell my brothers and say to them, imagine this, Jesus gave her the very first gospel message. (laughs) She got to go and tell these other disciples, go tell them. I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Whoa, there's the gospel in in one statement that now you can be children of God. And so Mary Magdalene went and announced this to the disciples. I've seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. So that's Mary. So what else do we see in Mary's?
1: Uh, So then even in that statement, you know, my father, your father, my God, and your God, he's tying back then to the prologue, uh, which we talked about before. Everything you're going to see in the book of John, you see first in the prologue, and so when he tells us the word became, the word is God, the word was God, and then now you're seeing, you know, he's claiming there's this God, and then if you go back to chapter 8, where he starts talking about, you know, your father is not Father Abraham, your father is the devil, um, and now you're supposed to get then the inverse of that. Your father can now truly be the Lord God
0: Almighty uh, because of what just happened in this tomb. Yeah, and I would throw in the prayer in John 17 where Jesus, oh, yeah. you know, he's praying and saying, Lord, I pray that they may be in us just as I am in you and you are in me. And so he's saying, This is really happening now. Uh, he is your God. So Jesus appears to Mary, and then he shows up on the evening of that same day, first day of the week. Uh, for the other disciples and it caught both of our eye that the doors were locked yes yeah i think some
1: translations may say shut but the idea is that the doors they're locked you can't open them and then they tell you why it says because they were afraid Uh, they had probably assumed what just happened to jesus was going to happen to them that they were going to be taken out uh, you know crucified killed or what have you Mm -hmm. Um, and so they didn't know what to do they were frightened and then jesus just appears in the room (laughs) yeah he shows up in the
0: room yes steve that's right yeah yeah so many different perspectives thank you yeah Stephen just points out that you have a moment of chaos here and the doors are locked <laughs> because from one perspective these people that are in the room are scared of the romans but it's probably true the flip side of that the romans recognized hey there could be an uprising coming and we need to guard ourselves against them too yeah that's a great point and and so jesus shows up he says shalom peace be with you mm-hmm. shows them his hands aside and uh and then he gives them really a great commission, or at least John's version of that, which is just as the Father has sent me, he says, so I am sending you. We talked about this several weeks ago, so we won't circle back, but this is the point where Jesus breathes on them, and they're given the Holy Spirit. And then he says, because you have the Spirit now, you have the ability to forgive, forgive sins. But the part to catch in that, I think, is Jesus appears, and now he gives them this uh, commission to say, just as the Father sent me into the world to do this amazing, great work, I am now sending you. And so that's the message to those, those and disciples. It's probably important
1: to point out, just as with Mary and with these, um, they're seeing a physical body; they're not seeing a spiritual manifestation of Jesus. They're seeing a physical representation of the body of Jesus. Yeah, um, it's very, it's very easy to think, oh, well, you know, he could walk through walls; he must be like a ghost. you you get rid of that (laughs) that's not what was happening
0: Uh, he was very much flesh and blood of some type Um, well that's yeah that's exactly right because he says to Mary quit holding on to me you can't hold on to a disembodied (laughs) (laughs) spirit and then to the disciples it says hey here's my hands my side take a look at this and then Thomas so he's the next one that we see so Jesus appears to Thomas Um, what do you call this? I, I call this the Thomas affair. Yeah, because Thomas was not there when Jesus shows up with the other disciples. And uh, Thomas was a twin. We're told that here. That's probably a little side point that just adds some veracity to this story. This is a historical document so they can know. Of all the Thomases you know, this is the one who was the twin. But he was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But then Thomas says, unless I see his hands... In his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. And you caught this when we were talking about this earlier, that, uh, like you, I had always thought that this was just kind of Thomas's ultimatum, okay. saying, all right, unless I see the marks in his hands or put my fingers there, unless I put my hand in his side, I will not believe. But he had reason to say that.
1: He had reason, yeah. Yeah, poor Thomas gets gets thrown under the bus for all all these years. But you, you realize that Jesus appeared to the other disciples first. And then they told Thomas about it. And you can you can guarantee they told Thomas, we touched the nail imprints, we touched his side. And so Thomas is just taking the same position that they had just taken a few verses before. You know, the other disciples aren't like these great men of faith. They had to see it, too. They had to touch it as well. And Thomas is just wanting that same experience for himself. And so he's not doubting Thomas. He's, hey, I want to see what you saw because you believe because of what
0: you saw, and I want to do the same thing. Yeah, John doesn't give us the whole conversation, but you can imagine... The disciples you know when Thomas first comes back to them say we saw the Lord and Mary's here saying we saw the Lord and and Thomas going what how do you know this was him and they said no totally we saw the the nail marks in his hands we put our hand in his side and then it's for that reason that Thomas says well unless I get to do that I can't believe and then that leads to eight days later when his disciples were inside so this is a whole week later eight days later and Thomas was with them although the doors were locked Jesus came, stood among them, and said, again, Shalom, which is the Hebrew greeting, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side." This is the same thing he had offered to the other disciples. And then he says, do not disbelieve, but believe. And what was Thomas's answer? My Lord and my God. There's his statement of belief. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? And then he talks about you. <laughs> Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that was Jesus' statement. Yes. I'm sorry, I got distracted for a second. Which verse is that the other disciples had Yeah, great question. I'm going to go up higher. This is in Jesus' appearance to the disciples as a whole. So when Jesus appears to the disciples, starting in verse 19, uh, the door was locked because of the fear of the Jews. And then uh, look at verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Yeah, so there's that that seems to be something that John is bringing out that we don't see necessarily in the other synoptics is here he is in a bodily resurrection. This is his body. His whole self, if you will, has been resurrected, now animated by the Spirit. So that brings us to the end of that where Jesus makes this comment about you and about me. Uh, Those of us who have not seen that, we have not seen, I I assume most of us here have not (laughs) actually seen the Lord in this embodied state and gotten to look at those nail marks in his hands. We can imagine it, but we haven't seen it exactly the way they did. But Jesus uses the same word that he used in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, blessed are you. Truly happy are those of you Who are able to take the testimony of other human beings who saw this, and put your full confidence, your full weight of belief in uh, Jesus? And then that's where this leads to the purpose of this whole book. The verse we've read over and over again comes right after this statement that Jesus makes to Thomas. Now Jesus did many other signs. In the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So this is where we find that the resurrection is actually the final and greatest of this long list of signs that John has given throughout the book. You might go all the way back to the beginning and remember the the making of wine from water. And then there's the healing of, you know, people who could not walk. And then there's the healing of the blind man. There's the dividing of bread. There's the raising of Lazarus. There's all of these signs that have occurred. But the last and the greatest is Jesus' resurrection. And that's what brings us here to the end. Well, before well, we start... Oh, a quick ahead. comment on
1: the, you know, those who haven't seen First uh, Peter eight, He touches on this and he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him and though you do not know him or, and though you do not now see him you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls and i think what peter's then meditating on and honing in on is that when you reflect back on the resurrection and on the empty tomb it is meant to elicit this overabounding inexpressible joy uh, because your savior, your messiah who you follow was not held in the grave and throughout the entire you know, course of human history there's only one man who's accredited with bringing himself back from the dead and that's Jesus Christ and so this is what it, it's a motivating influence in your life as you think and ponder on these things
0: yeah great question and let I me mean, make sure I restate that. You said that when Jesus breathed on them, said, receive the Holy Spirit, was this different than what they received on Pentecost? <laughs> We've talked about that. Yeah, we have talked about that. Um, it's not, there's different
1: opinions. Uh, there's not a straightforward answer. Um, you get some folks who think that this is John's version of reflecting back on Pentecost, not necessarily doing it in a chronological way, but just his own theological way to focus on it. Uh, there's other folks that, um, you know, uh, one of the things that I found was that when it says on them, like those exact words, they're not there. So it really just says Jesus breathed. And so you have to put some implications on what, what he was doing with this breath, what happened with it. Um, so there's lots of differences of opinions. It seems like the prevailing one, and maybe you have a different one, is that this is not to, meant to be in opposition to Pentecost when they were filled with the Spirit, but it's almost meant to be like a, a foreshadowing of it. Um, so I at least the ones I read didn't seem like they got something necessarily here because their faith doesn't seem to have been changed yet. Because then when you get to 21, they're still, they're still confused. They still don't know what's happening. But clearly, on the day of Pentecost, they're emboldened um, to preach. And so I don't think this is meant to be an actual in-giving of the Spirit,
0: but more of a just looking forward to when it will happen. Yeah, most likely. I Just know that the question you asked is asked by very smart people who know in-depth you know, these scriptures and even the scholars, like you said, debate on, okay, what does this mean? I think the take home point for me is, uh, that if you remember that John is not written like acts and that it's not a historical accounting, like looking at a calendar and saying these things happen, then it's helpful to realize what you're seeing there is a statement Jesus makes to the disciples about what it means to receive the spirit. And it's connected to breath, and we talked about that several weeks ago. But I think you're correct to say that it's not, you can't equate it to what happens on Pentecost. This is not, most likely, not John's way of saying the same thing that Luke describes later in Acts. Um, But it does broaden your mind to say, wait a minute, the Spirit is more than just what was poured out, what we see in Acts 2. That was a sign for everybody else who happened to be there. But the giving of the Spirit of God to his children is something... That uh, is a part of the whole gospel. This is part of the answer to Jesus' prayer. That, uh, that those who are God's children, who, who are made right again, receive this gift of the Holy Spirit. And then we're going to talk a lot about that when we get into 1 John. Because he picks up that theme and then applies it. In this case, in John, it's only applied to the apostles. You know, to the people who are there in that room. 1 John, you see how, wait a minute. That what he says there ends up being something, maybe in different ways, but it ends up applying to all of those who uh, have eternal life. So we'll circle back, circle back to that. Does that help at all, Tony? (laughs) Tell you why there's not necessarily an answer to that. Yes, Tony. Yeah. Okay. So let me kind of interpret what you're saying. Tony brings up the point that sometimes we're told that the Spirit can be given in these measures. So perhaps uh, here in John 20 what we're being told is that the Spirit is given in one measure, and then in Acts 2 we find a much different measure it's given. Is that the point that you're bringing? Yeah, Yeah. thanks, Tony. Yes, David. Oh, at that point, yes, yeah, 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 and that's I think Stephen's bringing up that same point yeah. you were saying is that it's John's way of saying, "Hey, this is part of the package." that's coming. Well,
1: and also, I guess in my my own perspective, it's really difficult to not want to logically make sense of everything you read. Um, but then if you keep in mind, going back to John 3, when he starts talking about the spirits like the wind, hey, we don't know how the wind works. You know, don't try to confine the spirit to a box and say, this is how he works, this is the formula. Be okay with the mystery um, and the fact that we aren't, we aren't always meant to grasp everything. Uh, you look at David, and I forget the song, but he talks about, I don't involve myself in things too weighty for me. And I'm like, yeah, okay, sign me up for that, because that, <laughs> that's my every day. And so I think the spirit falls in that same category. It's, you know, try not to rationalize it, but be at peace with the fact that God knows what he's doing with it, and he will do with it with you as he, as he sees fit.
0: Yeah. And again, we're going to circle back to that, I think, in 1 John, so I don't want to totally park that. But, but try to put together what we've talked about in terms of John's introduction of the spirit of God coming after his resurrection and his glorification. We're told his work's not done. His, the telios, the, the it is finished, when he says that's the end of the work that he came to do. But that word finished is not the word end. It's the word has come to completion. And so something has come to completion, but the work on earth still needs to be done. And we learned about that in, I think, John 16, the work of the Spirit, in terms of the convicting that still goes on and forward. And we'll talk more about that going forward. But here's the key in connecting to what we're reading in 20. All of this takes place in John in connection with the fact that Jesus did not stay dead. He has now risen and that means there is a solution to the death problem for those who who believe. And that's where John brings us back to the end. Now I say that because, you know, nowadays you, you get online and in the news and even, I mean, you may not even know what's happening behind the scenes. Do you realize there are entire companies that right now function in order to extend the life of animals and human beings. The experiment on the animals. In fact, there's a whole company out of Harvard that is working on the genetics of how to extend the life of dogs. And the whole idea is everybody loves dogs. If we can extend the life of dogs, then we can use what we learned, what's safe and allowable, (laughs) and then apply that to humans. Because there's this thirst for how do we extend life for human beings and attain this eternal life or this life you know into the age and uh, and those who from two thousand years ago, who have read this would say, "You realize that problem's already been solved, <laughs> and it 's not a matter of monkeying with the genetic code there 's something much more profound that occurs in the life of a person when God enters into that life and changes this person to be made right again, so that 's what we 're introduced to. I, I'm getting out of John 20, because John doesn't bring up any of that. He's just saying, guess what happened? The grave is empty. And then he says, I'm giving you this final greatest sign, along with all the others, so that you'll believe too, and that by believing, you would have life in his name. It's probably worth commenting with the few minutes that we have on, this was radical for anybody to write a document in that day and time that says a person could come back from the dead before the end of time yeah. And uh, and you've connected and Maybe first, just kind of quickly The connections This in some way takes us back to the Garden of Eden So yeah, very briefly Because I don't want to take up most of our time um, If you spend time on it and
1: you, and you look into it uh, the, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Has many, many links uh, Back to the Garden of Eden And I'm not going to go into them in any depth But just quickly And John is hinting at them the whole way He's arrested in a garden uh, he is, they talk about the first day of the week in every gospel. They specifically want you to know this happens on the first day, which gives you this idea of a new creation is about to happen. Um, Mary mistakes him for a gardener uh, in a garden. And then and then and John, especially, because they go, oh, well, there, was, there just happened to be a garden and a tomb in a place where he was crucified. It wasn't just happenstance. It was very much planned. Uh, later in the epistles, you read about Jesus is considered the new Adam, uh, linking back to, well, why do we need a new Adam? Why do we need a new creation? Because there's problems that had to be fixed. You go look in Romans 8, and it talks about creation or cre- Creation uh, is enslaved to corruption, awaiting the, the final uh, renewal of mankind, this, the fulfillment of our resurrection. Um, and then you get this idea that the entire cosmos is, ready to, is wanting to be made right again, not just humanity, but everything around us that God has made. Um, So tons of links back to the Garden of Eden, uh, because Eden was the original ideal, and I think that's what God is then trying to get us back to, because that's where Revelation ends, is with the you know heaven coming back down, heaven and earth reunited, and everything made whole once more, which we're going to hit on again once we get to First John, because he spends some
0: time in this. And and here's really one of the take-home points: is when you read this part of John, and you get to this, reading through start to finish, when you get Chapter 20. The take-home point is, you're getting to see the beginning of everything being made right again. In other words, where what went wrong in the garden is now being made right. Paul later is going to say, you realize, this is in First Corinthians 15, if, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Now, now hear that. If Jesus had just died for our sins, but was not raised... You would still be in your sins. In other words, the resurrection is a part of the making you right again and taking care of sins. And so you get this glimpse of that in John, uh, and, and John's saying, "The resurrection is a real deal. <laughs> this is totally, totally true. Yes. Yeah. And this is an important point. If, you know, if, if you follow Jesus because he makes life better, kind of helps out with family relations, makes me better at my job, helps keep me from doing bad things. If you follow Jesus for any of those reasons, as good as they might be, you're to be pitied among all people. Unless it is absolutely true that Jesus came out of that tomb in an embodied eternal state, you're to be pitied among all people. But if it's true, it means everything has changed. Maybe we'll get to that. Oh, we're getting real quick to the application (laughs) part of this. Uh, Let me skip through the the Old Testament references to resurrection. I think it's helpful to know that in the Old Testament, there are really only a couple places. You'll find it in Isaiah. You'll find it in Daniel where there's a specific statement that the dead will be raised. Daniel makes it really explicit. The dead will be raised, some to eternal life and others to eternal condemnation. That only shows up in a couple places. And then there are all these other hints from Moses all the way through the prophets that death is not the end. There's something beyond, but there's not a lot of specifics about how that's going to happen or what that will look like. So by the first century, there arose three different viewpoints on what it means to be raised from the dead. And I suppose if we went around the room today, even in our modern culture, and we said, what does it mean? What, is, what does it mean to be raised from the dead or what happens after death? we're going to get several different viewpoints and they would probably fall into these three. And those three viewpoints are either you believe that when we die, there is an annihilation. So you have annihilation, immortality, and resurrection. Some of us believe that when you die, that's all there is. You just die. You cease to exist. You are annihilated. And, and that was very much a prevailing view in the first century among the Sadducees. And so this leading group many of whom were priests in the temple believed that when you die you die so really life is about doing things right while you're here making the most of it but then you had this other group called the Essenes you might have heard of them Dead Sea Scrolls lived out in the desert they had really adopted more of the Greek view that the body and the soul are two separate things and so the idea is that the body's evil the soul is beautiful and good and at death there's finally a separation of those two things. The body is left to decay in the earth, but the soul returns to be with God in heaven, the part that's good. And that's called immortality. And some of you may nod and say, well, I thought that's what, that's what happens. That's what the Essenes believe." But that's not what the, the New Testament teaches. Instead, there was this third group, the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, reading through their Old Testament, reading these same scriptures, came to the conclusion that, no, at the end of time, there will be a resurrection in which the body and the soul, not separate, but both together are raised, and a person is made whole again. But those that held that view, most of these were the Pharisees, but those that held that view believed strongly that doesn't happen until the last day. Nobody gets that putting back together again until uh, the last day. So those were, the, those were the three prevailing views into which John writes this comment that Jesus, before the end of time, was raised from the dead, totally different than the prevailing Greek views you know or the Roman views of the time, very much against the leadership of the Sadducees at the time, maybe in line a little bit with the Pharisees. but I think it's helpful just to know that uh, setting into which uh, john was was first written. I mean
1: but again to put emphasis on your Old Testament Hebrew authors very much believed in a bodily resurrection. Uh, not, a, not a spirit, not an annihilation, but they absolutely, emphatically put their faith in the fact that their body would be raised in the last days.
0: Yeah, and that's where Jesus helps bring us back to reality. So we were joking a little bit yesterday and said, "So whatever you believe about, uh, you know, what happens after death, you can either be an Essene, you can you can be a Pharisee, a Sadducee, but what you really want is the reality, <laughs> and the reality is what Jesus teaches, and that's where you start in John one, where we're told." That which was made in him was life, and that life was the light of men. And then we learn, you know, when he raises Lazarus from the dead, and he's having the conversation with Martha, and uh, and and Martha says, "Well, I know that he will rise again at the resurrection at the last day." She tipped her hat, her hand at what she believed, and Jesus says, "Martha, I am the resurrection and the life." Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then he says, do you believe this? You know, And then we get here to the, uh, to the end of John, and we realize he is the resurrection and shows that to be true. And that's the reality, is that resurrection is absolutely possible, and he's the first fruits of that. So what does that mean to us? <laughs> and that brings us to the end. Yeah. and only time for a couple applications maybe. But.
1: Well, and as we've said before you know, what does this mean according to John well in his opinion it means absolutely everything uh, it, it completely changes your life and I think in the time we have left I think it's important to quickly touch on uh, the, the historical accounts of the early church yeah. and what this meant for them because uh, most of your New Testament scholars and, and historians are going to say the same thing without a resurrection uh, the early church makes absolutely no sense so if you think about you know, who, who made up the early church, it was incredibly um, uh, uh, a mixture of all different kinds of backgrounds, uh, nationalities, points of view, and what brought them all together, unlike anything in history that had before. It was the resurrection of Jesus. And so this was their fundamental um, belief and their foundation. Um, I mean, it's a foundational pillar, <clears throat> the foundational pillar in Christianity today and so that's what united them, and that's what changed uh, the world in essence. And you mentioned yesterday, and I'd never heard this before, uh, that are we can attribute
0: modern medicine to the early church movements. Oh, yeah. And I thought that yeah. was fascinating. Yeah, start with this thought. John says, you know, at the end of our purpose statement, believe these things. He wants you to believe these things because by believing, you'll have life in his name. He does not mean that sometime in the future you will get life. He's saying, when you believe, you get real life, and that starts now. There's not a stopping place for that. And because of that, the early church put that into practice. And this is just Mm -hmm. one example of that. Uh, In early Roman Empire, there were two great epidemics. You'll understand this because you just went through a pandemic. There were two major epidemics in the first, uh, actually the second century. So in the 100s, and then there's another one in the 200s. And do you know that in Rome, everyone who followed the pagans, uh, even the physicians, the famous Galen, the physician, they all fled Rome. Their, their reaction to an epidemic was get out of Rome. And the people who couldn't get out, they had a practice. If, uh, if, if someone in your house was sick, the way they practiced social distancing was social isolation. You take the person and throw them out in the street. I mean, that's how they would treat them. But there was this other group of people that, that for some reason, totally countercultural, when somebody was sick in a home... They would actually go into the house. After having had their meeting where they shared this meal, they would take that food and go into that house of the sick people and provide meals and food and fluid and what nowadays we would call modern nursing care. And all the epidemiologists who look at that time period say, there were Christians who died because of that. (laughs) You want to see my pictures? (laughs) There were Christians who died because of that, because they went in. Uh, But among all the people who stayed in Rome, the subgroup of people who survived the most in those epidemics were these followers of Christ. And that's why you had this explosion of Christianity early in Rome. And that's also why today we have three hospitals in town, Providence, Alaska Regional, Alaska Native Medical Center. Do you know that the, the foundation of the hospital system was based on what those Christians did in the first century of saying, if someone is sick, we don't run away. We don't throw them into the street. We will go in, even if it means threatening our own life. And when you read the early, the the church leaders at the time who were saying, why do we do that? They said, because we no longer have a fear of death. Death is not the end. There's something more important. And so in the name of Jesus, they would go in and give care. And that's still why those of us who practice medicine, we were part of that heritage that goes back to the beginning. That's only one small snippet, though. Yeah yeah
1: from you'll quickly
0: find that the early
1: church is attributed to uh, you know doing political change, doing educational changes. I mean every facet of society, the church was at it was, was ferociously in <laughs> if you will um, they were changing the lives of people all over the place. They weren't just teaching them religion, they were teaching them every facet of how to be a human being um, and you'll see a lot of critiques nowadays uh, criticizing the church globally uh, for getting away from that. For thinking that our only job is to, you know, teach you about God and, and give you salvation, when I think if you went back to the early church, they would not have had that. That would have been certainly a facet, but that was not the only thing they did. They were they were world changers, if you will, and that was their drive. Um, and it's very it's very awesome to go back and read these stories and see what motivated them because
0: they were not afraid anymore. They had no fear of death. They had no fear of anything. And that's really the point of today: is the foundation of that was that they had life in his name. And so as we talk about our phase one or phase two service to the community, imagine what happens in a body of people even today here in this town and in this place if we walk from this room after worship today as people who firmly are convinced that we have life in his name starting even now. So we'll end there today and then next week, I hope you have a chance. If you haven't done so already, read through the book of John and we'll uh, we'll do a summary of the Gospel of John uh, next week. Thanks. Let's prepare for worship.